we'll end up uh, in Colossians, but why don't you open up with me to, to Judges chapter 4. Uh, in, uh, in literature, there is a, uh, a device known as a, a foil, uh, where the, the author uh, takes two characters uh, and, and puts them side by side, and, and he, he will use that, the decisions that they make to, to contrast those two characters. And by holding them side by side and seeing the differences between them, uh, it, it serves to highlight the, the character of each one of them uh, to a greater brilliance, that idea of a foil comes from if you take a, a gemstone, if you, if you take a diamond or a ruby and you put it on on aluminum foil, what's going to happen? Uh, that, that stone is going to look more more bright, more, more vivid, more colorful. Uh, and that's the idea of this literary foil. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are many characters in Scripture that God kind of throws together to, to compare and contrast. Uh, it happens often in, in Shakespeare and other literary works, but it also happens significantly in, in Scripture. Some famous foils would be uh, King Saul and young David. Uh, if, you, if you see the differences between them of one who, who acts brashly and disregards God's word and another one who, who obeys God and fears the Lord, a man after God's own heart. Uh, at other times, you know, another occasion, Jesus told a parable of a man who had two sons. One of them went prodigal, uh, and one of them went and, and stayed home. Uh, and th- those two are going to be compared in that story. And then, uh, in here in Judges 4, something that we read this week in our, in our regular Bible reading plan that we read together, uh, Judges 4, uh, there's two characters, uh, uh, Barak and, and Jael. Uh, and this is one of the less familiar, uh, foils in scripture, but I thought it would be interesting just to read together since we, we read it already this week. If you look at Judges 4, uh, verses 4 through 9 with me. Uh, now Deborah, a prophetess, uh, the wife of uh, Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the, the palm of, of Deborah un, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Uh, and she sent and summoned uh, Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the, the general of uh, Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will, and I will give him into your hand. And it's interesting, the way that she speaks there, she says, hey, hasn't God already told you to do this? You should have already done this. And then look at uh, uh, Barak's brave response. He said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is the military leader of Israel. Uh, and this, this prophetess is having to, to chide him. Hey, hasn't God already commanded you to go up and do this? Uh, and as a result of his lack of faith, God says, All right, well, I'm going to take the glory that you would have earned, and I'm going to give it to to a woman, and and the foil in this case is going to be encountered or seen uh, in this woman Jael. Uh, so uh, Barak goes up and he battles uh, the Canaanite army, uh, and the, the Sisera, the leader of that army, uh, they are defeated, and he flees, and he flees to this this woman's tent. Uh, look with me, verse seventeen. It says, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And, and what, what's going to happen, and we saw this as we read, is so here you have the, the leader of the Israelite army who doesn't really know what to do. 
should he go up and, and to battle and he's, he's hesitant and, and fearful. But then this, this woman, as we're going to see, and it's kind of in a gruesome manner, she deceives the leader of the, the army, Sisera, and she kills him while he's asleep. So it just the, this contrast of you have this leader who doesn't know what to do and this random woman who knows exactly what to do when given the opportunity. Uh, and when you throw them together, you see that and you're able to compare and contrast the character of these individuals and, and each one is highlighted to a greater extent. Uh, and, and as we come to, to Colossians chapter 4, uh, we are going to see another foil. Uh, we're we're uh, in this portion of Colossians where Paul is, is kind of working through the group photo of him and his companions who are there with him uh, in prison in Rome. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 10 through, through 14, he's, he's working through these six companions who have been there with him. Uh, and he's, he's talked through the first three who were Jews and uh, the last three who are, are Gentiles. Let's, let's read just verses 10 to 14 again just to, to get the context. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And this is the the one verse that we're going to look at today. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And we look at these last two men. And because while Paul doesn't realize it at the time that he's writing, hey, these are, these are two men who have been with him in ministry, uh, but these men are going to have two very different endings, and they're going to finish on two very different trajectories, and they're going to create a, a foil for us that we're going to get to compare and contrast the decisions that they made uh, with much to learn from them. But it also presents a, an interesting theological question, because what we're going to see is, even though these two men are serving Paul faithfully now, one of them is going to fall away from the Lord. One of them is going to completely abandon Paul, completely abandon Christ, which presents us with this question of how does that happen? Why does that happen? How can somebody be walking with the Lord, serving him in ministry for years, and then abandon the faith? That's a big question, right? And we want to look at it uh, from Scripture. That, that's, that's something that we, we have a desire to know and to answer. Of What do we do with somebody falling away from the Lord? Uh, what does this mean? What are we supposed to make of this? Uh, and as we look at the lives of people in Scripture, we, we have much to learn from them. And we have the blessing of, of being able to look back and with, a, with a divine commentary. God gives us an explanation of why Demas fell away. Uh, he's going to be able to explain that to us, and he's going to be able to give us insight. And so what I want to do this morning is much like we've done in the past, is take a look at who these men were, and then ask, what do, what do we learn from them? What do we, what do we call to take away from, from these two men? Why are they mentioned here in Scripture? So I want to begin with who they were, and let's start off with uh, Luke, the beloved physician. 
Okay? And, and Luke is the author of the third gospel, the one that bears his name, and he's also the author of the book of Acts uh, in uh, the fifth book in the New Testament. And uh, these, these are two very, very important books. The, the first records the life of Christ. The second uh, records the, the early life of the church, uh, explaining who the apostles were, what they did, what they accomplished in the power of the Spirit. Uh, but they also show that Luke is a first-rate historian. Like, yes, he's a physician, but he is also an amazing historian. If you turn over to, to Luke chapter 1, you, you see the, the great lengths that he, that he went to, uh, to research uh, his account. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke writes this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So Paul's saying, hey, all of these things that I've been taught, I wanted to go research them. I wanted to go and, and find the details of what took place. And if you, if you read Luke's gospel, it's, it's apparent that he probably went and spoke to to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He probably went and spoke to Elizabeth and, and, and Zacharias. He went and spoke to these individuals and, and got the eyewitness testimony of, of what took place. That's why he has the details that he has in his gospel. And what's amazing is when you look at what he wrote in, in Luke and in Acts, that makes him the author of the largest portion of the New Testament. This guy, Luke, wrote, wrote more of the New Testament than Paul. When you look at word count, uh, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament and, and Paul wrote 23. So Luke and Acts together are more than all of the letters of Paul combined. And yet, this most prolific author of the New Testament, this is the guy who wrote the, the, the most New Testament, uh, he's only mentioned three times in Scripture by name, which is pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, each time, he's mentioned right alongside Demas, so we also have to say, okay, what's, what are we supposed to take away from this? So he's mentioned here in Colossians, and actually in Colossians, this is what gives us the most details about him. This is where we find out that he was a Gentile and not a Jew, uh, because he's not listed among those who are the fellow workers for the kingdom among the circumcision, in verse 11. He, he's, a, he's a Gentile, and he's a physician. He's a doctor. And this is evidenced also by what he, Paul says here. And then... Luke's Greek is very, very advanced. When I was in seminary, they talk about, hey, if, you, if you're like beginning Greek, you do like First John because it's very simple, very basic. Uh, and if you, after years of studying, then you could maybe really in-depth look at Luke and Acts because he's a doctor. He's a very sophisticated, very well-educated guy. Uh, so his Greek uh, is, is accompanied uh, or accompanies what his education would have been. So we know that he is a, a Gentile, a physician, He's well-educated in that he is a ministry companion of Paul. But other than that, we don't have a whole lot of details. And it's it's amazing. So even though he's only mentioned three times in Scripture by name, he appears throughout the book of Acts in a very, very subtle way. If you jump over to, to Acts chapter 16 with me. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. It says, and they, speaking about Paul and Timothy, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, 
they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So with that little paragraph, that shift from they in verse 6 to we in verse 10, Luke is suddenly a traveling companion with Paul. And you're like, that's that's a very, very humble entrance, right? Suddenly he's just there with him. We don't know when he came to Christ. We don't know when he came into contact with Paul or, or what took place there. Suddenly, Paul gets to Troas and they becomes we. And Luke is now traveling with him uh, on his missionary journey. That's like the most humble entrance I've ever seen of, of a biblical author. Again, this is, this is a, a, an amazing man of God, and he doesn't ever make it about himself. It's always about what is God doing through Paul, through the apostles, uh, how is the Spirit of God working in the people of God. That, that is what Luke always emphasizes. And then from there, he's going to, to continue on Paul's journey with him. Uh, and as we work through chapter 16, I don't know if Luke was there in prison, uh, with Paul and Silas, because it doesn't mention we, it's, it's they, and, uh, and so it might be that, that, that Luke stayed there in Philippi, wasn't arrested, uh, and then he, he disappears for a while in the sense that there's no we passages until chapter 20, uh, and so, and that's when Paul comes back around through Philippi. So it might have been that Luke stayed there in, uh, the city of Philippi to help establish the church for a time. We don't know all of the details, but, uh, but Luke, when Paul comes back around, through Philippi, on his way to Jerusalem, what's abundantly clear is that Luke travels with him from that point forward. That as, as Paul goes to Jerusalem, when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and then when Paul travels to Rome, Luke is with him on that entire journey. So from, from chapter 20 through the rest of Acts, Luke is with Paul, never leaving his side, more than likely. And along with him is Aristarchus, a man that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of Acts uh, chapter 28, Paul is still in prison. Uh, and during his imprisonment uh, in Rome, this is when he's going to write this letter to the Colossians. Uh, and then Paul is going to be released. Uh, and that's when he's going to go on uh, another couple of journeys, possibly to Crete, uh, and then possibly to onwards to Spain. Uh, and then he's going to, to be imprisoned again for a final time, knowing that he's going to be uh, killed by the emperor. Uh, and Luke, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4.11 is another verse that, that mentions Luke, and it says, so Paul, on his, on his deathbed, so to speak, in, in his last letter, writing to Timothy, he says, Luke is the only one with me. That Luke was still there at the end of Paul's life. Luke stuck it out with him. He was the, the epitome of faithfulness. And through all of those journeys, he stuck with him. And this is going to be compared and contrasted with Demas. So Luke is the beloved physician, and Demas is the lover of this world. And just like Luke, Demas is only mentioned three times in Scripture. Here in Colossians, again in Philemon 24, and then also in that passage in 2 Timothy. Uh, and they're always mentioned together, and we're told very little about Demas in each of these passages. Here in, in Colossians, you notice, how much, how many details are we given about Demas? Nothing. So of the six men that in this group photo of Paul's ministry companions, everybody else has something said about them, and then he comes to Demas, and he's like, 
yeah, Demas says hello. So, so I'm not sure uh, if Paul already saw some things in Demas that were a concern to him or what, but we just, we don't, we're not given any details. But in Philemon verse 24, Paul refers to him as a, as a fellow worker. To say, hey, this is somebody who has labored alongside me, uh, for the, for the advancement of the gospel. And so at that point in time, he was serving along with Paul, but, but turn with me to, to 2 Timothy 4. And this is, this is gonna be really, really important that we, that we grasp what, what Paul says, this last statement regarding Demas. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So we don't know all the details of what happened. We don't know when Demas deserted Paul, but we know that he did. So it could have been that Demas traveled for a time with Paul uh, on those journeys to Spain and Crete, or it could have been that he left right after he was free or right before Paul is arrested for the second time. We're not sure. It's not clear. Uh, and it's possible that that after this, Demas had some some change of heart and, and repentance and came back to Paul. It's possible. Uh, we just saw a couple weeks ago, there was another man who abandoned Paul on a missionary journey who was restored. John Mark. Right? So this is, uh, Demas wasn't the only one to have abandoned Paul. But, but what seems to be the testimony of scripture, and this is, this being the final verdict, it seems, is that Demas abandoned Paul and abandoned the faith because what was Paul's explanation and evaluation? He says he loved this world, loved this present world. That is what drove Demas to, to part ways with Paul. And that's a sad story, right? And again, as we compare those two, again, they're only mentioned three times, all of them, both of them always together. It raises some big questions with big implications of, of how do you what are we to think of this person who walked and ministered alongside the Apostle Paul for years? It wasn't just a flash in the pan. What do we do with this person who's, who's walked with Paul and seemed to be following Christ for years, and then they choose to abandon the faith and walk away? That's a that's a big big question. So so moving on, I want to I want to answer those questions that are raised, and you'll see that there on your outline. I want to answer two questions of. Number one, how should we understand someone falling away from Christ? And then number two, why do people fall away from Christ? And before we try and answer those two questions, I need to, to kind of set, set the stage here a little bit. These two questions, there's going to be disagreement on this. There's going to be people who would disagree with what I'm, I'm going to, to say. Uh, and I'll explain some of the, some of the different views. Uh, there are some who might, and looking at Demas's case, there, there are some who might say, hey, you know what, Demas, as soon as he abandoned the faith, he, he lost his salvation. He was genuinely saved, he had it, and then he lost it. 
uh, because he abandoned Paul and abandoned Christ. Uh, and still others might say, that, hey, you know what, Demas, because he, he, he prayed that prayer and he walked with Christ for a time, no matter what happens after that, he's still with Christ. So, hey, he, even no matter what he does afterwards, he's still saved. There would some, be some who would, who would say that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna present something different, but those would be two, two other op- differing views of that. And, and so when we come to these questions, this is, this is an important question because uh, it's connected intimately with the gospel and salvation, of how we understand salvation itself. And answers to these questions come loaded with a whole lot of emotions, right? Uh, because, because many of us, if we have been walking with Christ for any amount of time, we've seen others wander away from Him. We, we've seen others fall away from Christ to, to do exactly as Demas did. Uh, and it's heartbreaking, and, and it's so difficult to see see that happen. And we want to understand. We want to come to a conclusion. Lord, how do I how do I understand this? It's so important, and, and, and emotions can can run high. But what we first have to do when we answer these questions, we have to begin with Scripture. What we have to begin by asking, what does God say about this? Because this is an important question. But oftentimes, people begin at a different place. We say, what, what conclusion do I want to come to? What do I want to believe about this person who's, who's abandoned the faith and abandoned Christ? And if we do that, if we start with what we want to happen, what, what's going to take place? We're going to read things into the Bible. We're going to, we're going to force things upon God that aren't really there. Uh, or we're going to ultimately develop our own theory and, and we become our own God. We become our own theologians and lawgivers. Have you guys ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Uh, it was uh, originally called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And Thomas Jefferson made it in his last years, and I say that he made it rather than he wrote it, because what he what he did is he took a, a razor blade and tape, or glue, I guess back in those days since there wasn't tape, and he meticulously cut out from the four Gospels those things that he liked, or those things that he didn't like, depending on what, how you do it. He, he literally cut out everything to do with the supernatural. He didn't believe in miracles or anything like that. So, hey, I'm just going to remove that. And so he just took Jesus as a human being, no mention of his deity, no mention of anything supernatural. So every single miracle in the four gospel accounts didn't make it into Jefferson's Bible. So that means no resurrection, there's no healings, there's, there's nothing. And so what did Jefferson do? He said, hey, let me create Jesus in my own image. Let me create this God that I want to worship who meets my standards. Right, because Jefferson was the one doing the editing, and sometimes in a in a, a more subtle way, we can do the same thing. We can pick and choose truths that we like or don't like, and reject others. and And I have to say, may we never do that. May we never be so presumptuous to to come to God and say, "Okay, God, you need to fit in and obey what I want." But we need to first come to Scripture and say, "Lord, help me to understand this. What do you say about this? And help me to to understand from your word." So let us now go to Scripture and try and answer those two questions of how should we understand someone falling away from the faith and why does that happen? So that first question, so I would say I'm going, to, I'm going to give my conclusion then I'm going to support it from Scripture. So I would say that, that the clear answer from Scripture would be that some people fall away 
Not because they lose their salvation, but because they never truly believed in Christ in the first place. So, so I'll, I'll explain that. So, and I would say this is taught by Jesus, this is understood by Paul, and then clarified by the Apostle John. So turn with me over to uh, the passage that was read in our scripture reading today, Mark chapter 4. As we, as we look there, Jesus himself in this parable pointed to the responses to the gospel. We've, we've read this passage already. It says, you know, a sower went out to sow. And this sower going out to sow is, is somebody going out and proclaiming the gospel. Going and sharing the word of God. Mark 4.14 says that the sower sows the word. Parallel passage in Luke uh, chapter 8 verse 11 says the seed that is sown is the word of God. Uh, of uh, What is being tossed out here is the gospel. The, the gospel message. And what, what is the gospel? Well, in, in simplest terms, it's uh, the message that all people everywhere have sinned against the holy God. That we have broken his law. We've rebelled against him. We've taken him off of the throne and placed ourselves on the throne. Said, I want to be in control. I want to dictate everything. We've broken God's moral law. And the price of our rebellion is death. An eternal penalty for an eternal crime against an infinite God. It's a, it's a payment that we could not uh, pay in and of ourselves, but God in His love and in His mercy sent His Son, Jesus, to pay that. To, to pay for our sin, for our rebellion. Jesus lived a perfect life, died an atoning death on the cross, and then conquered the grave, just as we sang this morning. We believe in the resurrection. And in that resurrection, it shows that He conquered death, overcoming sin and Satan. And satisfying the wrath of God. And now the gospel message is that all people are called not to look to themselves, but to look to Christ for salvation. This is the, this is the message that is sown by the sower. And and when you when you share that message, there's different ways of of that people are going to respond. And that's what Jesus is going to say here. When when you go out and share the gospel with others, when you say, "Hey, you're a sinner separated from a holy God, and you need to look to Him and to Christ in faith in order to be reconciled." There's going to be many different responses, but ultimately they're going to boil down to four categories. And this is what Jesus is going to say. So in this parable, the the seed of the gospel is sown in different soils. And the soils are representative of different kinds of responses to the gospel. They they represent the heart conditions uh, of how people respond. So there's four types. Number one, it would be the the hard soil that's sown along the path. If 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 you go hiking... As you walk along that path, uh, that ground is really hard. It's really compact. Why? Because people have been walking along it and treading upon it. And it's been compacted down, so it's, it's rough. If you were going to plant seeds, you wouldn't go and plant them on the path. It's not going to grow. You would go and plant it off of the path. And that, that ground right alongside the path is going to be the hardest. So on that hard soil, the seed never even gets underground. But it's, it's eaten up by the birds and, and carried away. The second kind of soil, the shallow or rocky soil, and by rocky it's meaning that it's it's shallow because farmers, if you have a rock in your field, you get rid of it. But he's talking about shallow soil here. And what happens here is, hey, the seed is planted and it springs up immediately. But it eventually withers out. Why? Because the shallow soil prohibits a root system from growing down. It can't really become cemented and have stability and a foundation, but it is eventually dries up and withers away. The third type of soil is that uh, the weed-infested soil. So, so it grows, but eventually what's happened is it's choked out 
by the thorns and the weeds that are also growing among the soil. And that fourth type of soil is what? It's the, the good soil. Now, and as you look at these types of, of responses, how many of them produce fruit? Only one. There's only one of these that, hearts that truly accepts and receives the gospel. The others may receive it for a time, but they, they ultimately fall away. Warren Wearsby says this, he says, It is important to note that none of these first three hearts, the soil by the wayside, the shallow soil, and the weedy soil, underwent salvation. The proof of salvation is not listening to the word, or having a quick emotional response to the word, or even cultivating the word so that it grows in a life. The proof of salvation is fruit. For as Christ said, you shall know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, verse 16. Now, another pastor says that fruit, not foliage, uh, is the mark of true salvation. When you, when you look at an apple tree, do you determine that it's a healthy tree just because it has leaves or because it has fruit? Right? Yeah, you, you, you judge it by the fruit, not just the fact that it has leaves. So what Jesus was teaching his disciples that, hey, as you go out and proclaim the word, there's going to be some who immediately reject you and, and are hostile. That's that first soil. You share the gospel. And those are the ones that, as we, uh, if we're totally honest, that's what, that number one, that soil is why we're usually afraid to share the gospel with others. Because we think that they're going to immediately be hostile back towards us and we're like, what do I do? They're going to hate me. They're going to, I'm going to, you know, be persecuted. All of these things of, as soon as we, that's the reason. We're worried that someone's going to be soil number one. Uh, so Jesus says, hey, there's going to be some who just absolutely reject you. And there's also going to be others who, who receive with joy. They're going to immediately receive it, but they're, but then soon after they're going to fall away. That, that's going to be a common place. You're going to have somebody say, hey, I want to follow Christ, and then, uh, never mind. Uh, and we'll talk about why uh, on that second question. But there's also going to be some who, who are there for a time, but their faith is eventually choked out. That, that third soil. And if you're the disciples hearing this parable at that time, you're like, man, this is not good. That's like 75%. This is not a good batting average. And this is discouraging of like so many times we're going to share the gospel and people may not respond. But what's also encouraging is that that fourth soil is a guarantee. That as we're going and sharing the gospel, there will be some who reject. There will be some who be openly hostile. There's going to be some who receive and fall away. But there's also going to be some who receive and accept and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 full. How encouraging is, is that? And, and are we responsible for the, for the, the, the fruit or, or the responses of those individuals? What are we supposed to do in this parable? Who are we? We're those who are called to just go and cast out the seed. All right, let's throw the, let me throw the gospel out. Let me see what happens. God, are you going to save? What are you going to do? Uh, it's not up to us. We just share the gospel and proclaim it. That is what we are called to do. But this reality is taught by Jesus that there will be some who receive the word initially and then fall away. This is also understood by the Apostle Paul. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 20. This is one of those sections where where Luke would have been with Paul. And Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem. He doesn't have much time. So he doesn't want to go into Ephesus and visit with the elders. So what he does, he's, he stops in, in the nearby port of Miletus and he sends for the Ephesian elders to come to him. 
Uh, and these were, there were guys that Paul was, was with them in Ephesus for, for upwards of probably two and a half to three years, teaching them, discipling them. And he's going to come alongside them and, and they, they know that this is probably going to be the last time that he speaks with them. And look at what he says in verse 28 of Acts 20. These are men that he himself has discipled. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he says, hey, make sure you guys care for your people. Care for them. God has made you overseers of them. In verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. He says, hey, you guys be sure to shepherd the flock and be aware of what? Others coming in to attack and try and take away your people. And then verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Think about what Paul is saying to these men that he's discipled and taught. What did he just predict? What did he say was going to happen? Some of y'all I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> Some of y'all are going to lead people astray. That's what he says to them. Because Paul understood what Jesus himself taught, that, that there will be some who fall away. And that's amazing. Again, it's like, Paul, well, when you discipled these men, why would they fall away? He says, hey, because it's not up to me. The fruit and the response. Paul understood what Jesus taught regarding the responses to the gospel. And what Jesus taught and Paul understood was also clarified by the Apostle John. Turn with me backwards uh, to John chapter 2. After we, we finish Colossians in a couple weeks, we're going to look at Philemon. Uh, in the summer, we're going to be looking at the Psalms. And then my, my goal for the fall is to, to begin preaching through the Gospel of John. Uh, and I can't wait to do that. And what, one of the things that we're going to see in the Gospel of John is that there's two different kinds of faith that the, the, the apostles always talking about. Those who believe in Jesus but not really, and those who genuinely believe in Jesus. So look, look at John chapter 2. This is an excellent example of this. Beginning in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, speaking of Jesus, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a little play on words here. Uh, and that idea of says that they were believing in Jesus and that Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. Well, that those words of believing and entrusting are, are the same word. So it's the idea of they were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. So then, why doesn't Jesus believe in their belief? Why, why does he not trust them when they say, hey, I believe in you? Well, because what does it say? Jesus knows what's going on inside them. He knows their hearts. And what does he see? What does he know? They don't truly believe in him. What we're going to see in the Gospel of John is over time, as Jesus begins to preach some hard things, things that they begin to disagree with. John 6, when he says, you got to eat of my flesh. They're like, I don't know. That's, that's interesting, Jesus. Let me go over here. Uh, they're going to fall away. Uh, and Jesus understood that, hey, there, there are two different types of belief. The apostle John understood, hey, there's believing and then there is believing. And he's going to explain this even further in the first epistle that bears his name. Turn with me 
to 1 John chapter 2. It's a very, very clear passage here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The Apostle John writes in the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain they are not all, that they all are not of us. So John's, John's logic here is really simple. So they, they went out. There were some who left. And they, why did they leave? Because they were not of us. They were not truly believers. And then he uses the opposite of, hey, if they were truly believers, genuinely saved and have a relationship with Christ, what could never have happened? They could never have, have gone out from us. They could never have, have wandered away if they were true believers. And scripture makes it clear, those who turn away from Christ would never truly believe in Him at all. So, so we've, we've looked at this from scripture. One thing that's kind of interesting, of, if you disagree with me on this, we, we can agree on one thing. Of if, if Demas is, is standing here in the room with us, all three of the views here would urge and exhort him in the same way. Okay, if you believe that Demas has had salvation and then lost it, what would you say to him? What would we plead with Demas? Please turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Repent and believe. If you say, hey, you know what? He, he was saved at the beginning and he's still saved now even though he's wandered from Christ. What would we still say to him? Turn back to Christ. We would plead with him. Hey, forsake your sin and turn back to Jesus. Don't wander from him. And if we, if we believe that, hey, you know what? Maybe he wasn't genuinely saved. What would we still say to him? Again, the same plea. Repent and turn to Christ. So there's some things that we don't have to, to always understand and, and be in agreement on, but we, we agree wholeheartedly that what we need to exhort this person to is to believe the gospel. And that's something that we always need at all times. That, that is the message of the Christian life, not just to, to get saved and to begin to have a relationship with Christ, but it is at all times. Just, you say to anybody in sin, wandering from God, hey, turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. That is what we are always called to do. Uh, and so that, that is where we, we have common ground on all of this. And that, that is our, our wholehearted exhortation to anybody who's struggling in sin. But let's continue to look at this from another angle. For the sake of our own hearts, that we might be warned and instructed, let's ask another question. Why do people fall away? How, how does this come about? How did it come about that, that Demas would be led away, that he can be walking with Paul and seeing all of these things that, that the Lord is doing through the Apostle Paul, and that he could wander away. Well, let's turn back to, to Mark chapter 4. I know we're bouncing around quite a bit, but Mark chapter 4, let's look at how Jesus explains the, the meaning of the parable and what happens. See, he gives, gives three explanations, and these are, these are explanations, uh, these are three things that are always waging war against Christ, his people, and the message of the gospel. Now what he's gonna explain is, hey, the, what, what, what keeps people or helps people or causes people to fall away is the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
That, that is what we see here, the hard soil. Uh, so verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are the, are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, who is it that immediately comes and takes away the word? Satan. Uh, and if you look at uh, the second soil, why is it that that the, on that shallow soil that the word shrivels up and withers away? It's because at the first sign of, of persecution, the first sign of, of any trials or difficulties that, that are associated with Christ, the first time someone says, hey, are you a Christian? They act like Peter on the night of uh, Christ's arrest. Now, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. Uh, I don't want anything to do with him. Uh, and then completely abandoned. And then that third group. Look with me at that third, because that is where we find Demas. Look at verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So when we ask, hey, what happened with Demas? His love for the world, his affection for the things of this life rather than the things of Christ are what choked out his own faith. Listen to James 4.4. says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James doesn't mince words there. He doesn't, pre- pre- doesn't present this neutral category of like, hey, there's friend, enemy, and then like an acquaintance. You can kind of be an acquaintance of the world uh, and know some things. Like, no, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. And you know what? Friendship with God is going to make you an enemy of the world. That's what we see. And then again in 1 John John says this, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Paul knew and understood that as well. And his inspired evaluation of Demas is, hey, this, this man fell away, even though he's walking with Christ for years, because of his love for the world. Demas is the perfect example of that third soil. One that grows for a time, but eventually is choked out by other things. Which then, which then leads us to ask again some, some sobering questions of ourselves. If this happened to Demas, someone who's walking with Paul for years, how do we guard our hearts? How do we evaluate ourselves in light of this? As we look at Luke, as we look at Demas, I don't think there's anybody here that's like, hey, I'd much rather be Demas than Luke. We're all like, okay, teach me how to be like Luke. I want to, I want to emulate him. I want to be faithful like Luke, rather than faithless, like Demas. So I would, I would challenge us to, to ask and answer these questions of ourselves in our hearts with prayerful consideration, not, not quick answers of, yes, I know that, or I know this, of, 
No, deep, thought-provoking reflection is what is required of this. Question number one. How much value do I ascribe to Christ in my own heart? How much value do I ascribe to Christ in my own heart? How worthy do I think Christ is of my time, of my affections? How valuable is he? See, worship is worthship. You worship someone or something because you deem them to be worthy of your affections. And the big picture message of Colossians is that Christ is supreme, that he is deserving of being your everything. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, hey, make me something in your life, right? He says, no, make me everything. See, Christ was everything to Luke, but only something to Demas. That's why Demas wandered away. And may we all get to the point where I think we could echo Luke and we could echo the psalmist's words in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist cries out, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Just that cry of, God, you are what I want. You are what I need. You are everything. Besides you, I don't have anything in heaven, and I don't have anything here on this earth. That should be our heart cry. How much do I, how much value do I ascribe to Christ in my own heart? Secondly, in what ways am I tempted to love the world? In what ways am I tempted to love the world? Falling away never happens overnight. It wasn't like Demas was totally on fire for the Lord one day, and then the next day he's like, I don't know about this. Uh, no, Demas's departure would have been gradual. would have been over time. It would have been a series of, of questions and doubts, a series probably of sins, a, a series of, of, of beginning to love the things of the world without checking his heart. And I phrase this question of, uh, not, not as an if you are being tempted by the world. It is a how am I being tempted? You are being tempted. See, uh, the air around us, there, there's this barometric pressure at sea level. There's always 14.7 pounds of air pushing upon you. And, and what happens? You get used to it, right? Here at uh, where we are, uh, elevation 2750, do you know how I know that? It's listed at Trader Joe's in downtown. Uh, uh, elevation here in a Boise area, 2750, the pounds or the barometric pressure is about 13.23 pounds per square inch, always pressing upon you. Think about that. You're not even aware of it. You're not even conscious of, of the pressure of the air around us always bearing upon us. You just get used to it. And I, I fear we also just get used to the world and the culture pressing upon us as well where we don't even begin to realize how it's influencing us. What, what is, it's, call, it's constantly calling you to change your affections. The world is constantly trying to influence you to be made after its own image. That's the, that's the competition. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, wants to make us like who? Christ. The world, who do they want to make us like? Just like the world. There are these two competing... Uh, forces trying to, to mold us and shape us to, to form our affections. And, and everything around you is, is driven to try and get you to, to buy something, 
or to think that you need something, or to get your attention on that device that you always have on you, and the second you don't have it, you're like, where is it? i got to have it. We all act like Gollum, and where's the ring? I need to have it. Uh, where, where, uh, we need to see these how the things of this world are impacting us. We need to be aware of it, because it's happening all the time. And it's, it's going to be a slow and subtle shift of our hearts, of our affections, that's going to pull us away from Christ. We're going to wander into sin and, and not, not be broken. Not really care. Not, not have a fear of the Lord. Of saying, Lord, I've sinned against you. We're not going to, we're not going to feel as much of a desire to, to pursue Christ. I mean, that, that, that call of my, uh, my job, that promotion, or the approval of somebody else, or the or the the obtaining of riches or possessions of, hey, I'm going to just work a lot of overtime and get that boat, and then do all of these things. Of all of these things in this world around us are constantly striving to steal our affection away from Christ. John Piper says, "We will be shaped by the world without intentional efforts to not be." or to say it positively, unless we are working hard to not be influenced by the world, we will be. If we're not actively fighting against those temptations and asking those questions of how am I being influenced, where are you trying to draw my affections away, we, we will just go with the flow. And so we have to ask, how is the world transforming our affections and desires? Are you, are you tempted to pursue the approval of man Instead of the approval of God, are you tempted to to pursue sex and pleasure uh, with selfish and unholy motives rather than in God's plan of marriage? Are you tempted to find comfort, security, and satisfaction in wealth and material possessions rather than in Christ? Those are all temptations that we face. But listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this this verse at the end, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your feet will follow your heart. Where did Demas' feet demonstrate his heart went? After the things of this world? His feet followed his heart. His his heart wandered from God long before his feet did. Long before he left Paul, he began to worship other things. And we have to ask, what am I worshiping? How is the world drawing me away? And then this third question, turn over to Luke chapter 14. Of Have I counted the cost of following Christ? And there is a cost. The gospel is free and costly all at once. And Jesus gives gives this exhortation. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Heading in the ESV says, The cost of discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. What Jesus is saying there is, hey, there's a cost to follow Jesus that you need to count. Before you, before you begin, understand the cost of following Christ. And, and those, those second and third soils, what do they fail to do? That they fail to really genuinely say, Lord, I understand what you're asking of me, and I'm committing to that. I understand what you require of me. There's a, it will cost you to follow Jesus. But let's keep reading. Verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The first illustration that he gives shows, hey, there's a cost to following Jesus. This second illustration, there's a cost if you don't follow Jesus. What happens to that king if he doesn't send for terms of peace? He's going to lose. He's going to be defeated and crushed. There's a cost to follow Jesus and there's a cost to not following Jesus. So we all have to decide what we're going to do. And have we counted that cost? And if if this is new to you, I'm not quite sure if I've, if I've signed up for all of this, Jesus. You need to consider the cost. You need to understand what Christ is calling us to. Not that the gospel is costly. It's a free message. But to follow Jesus will cost us everything. Salvation costs us everything and nothing all at once. And these two men that we see thrown together in Scripture three separate times, Luke and Demas, they are this, this foil. That they are, we are to compare and contrast them. And they are the, the exact opposites. Demas loved this present world and lived accordingly. Luke lived for the next world because he loved Christ. Luke was prepared to lose everything for Christ. Demas was not. Luke was the epitome of faithfulness and Demas was the epitome of faithlessness. So, for some of you, this might raise a big concern in your hearts. Say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm Luke or if I'm Demas? How do I know if I'm going to fall away? How do I evaluate myself in light of this? And the answer doesn't lie within you. It lies within Christ. See, we're not called to, to secure our own salvation. We're called to pursue Christ. We're, we're called to cling to Him, to run to Him at all times, and then knowing if we are doing that, He will cling to us and run to us, hold us tight as well. If we see the world and this life as having the greatest worth and value, and we try and find rest in that, then yeah, we're going to be exactly like Demas, and we're already on that trajectory. But if we, if we don't look to the world, but if we look to Christ... If we look to him and say, Jesus, you are of infinite worth, of infinite value. You are worthy of everything in my life, not just something. If we look to him in that way, then we can rest with this security. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can rest secure. If we're pursuing Christ, we can rest secure because he's got us. And there were a whole lot of exact numbers there uh, of nothing. I mean, he goes out of his way to poetically and emphatically say, there's nothing that can remove you from God's hand, from the love of God that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't need to anxiously ask, will I persevere? Will I fall away? What we need to ask, to, to, to ask that question first, is to miss a more foundational question. What we need to ask is, am I looking to the world or am I looking to Christ? And that will determine the next. If we're looking to Christ, we rest secure. If we're looking to the world, sinking sand with judgment to come. May we all look to Christ. May we all look to him, not just as a something, but as everything. And may we may we take heed to this, because this is sobering. This is a, a big concept here that we looked at. And there's much to learn and take away. Let's let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you. Acknowledging our own sinfulness, our, acknowledging our need for a Savior, acknowledging our desperate need for Christ. Lord, I pray that if we are wavering in our faith, if we are beginning to doubt, if we are beginning to question, if we are beginning to be pulled away from you by the things of this world, or that you would grant us repentance and faith, that you would help stir our affections and draw us back to you. Lord, I pray that we would see you as supreme. Lord, that you would always be growing in our affections in in our understanding of your greatness and grandness, Lord, may we always be growing in our love for you and may our love for this world always be diminishing. May we see this world as fading away, as being uh, worthless and, and unworthy of our affections. Lord, may you draw us to ourself, to yourself. May you help us to rest secure in your word and in your promises. Lord, enable us to persevere in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name.